When we talk about ingredients, there's a lot to consider. How fresh the fruit, how local the meat, how wild the fish. Whether the farmer takes care of the soil, the workers, the water. We've grown accustomed to asking these questions about practically every ingredient. Because from the answers, we might glean something about the quality of the food and what its production gives or takes from a community. But for some reason, these are not questions most of us have been asking about flour until recently. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. You are listening to Gravy. 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 <laughs> a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. In this episode, we're going to hear from a couple of people who have started demanding more from their flour. In the South, much of the work to bring local quality flowers started in an inconspicuous little house and bakery in Marshall, North Carolina. That's where we've made our home for this batch of gravy. We'll hear from a couple of the people who lived and baked there, as well as the baker who occupies it now and how she's choosing the flowers she works with. Arena Zhuroff brings us the story after this quick message. Ready for cookout season? Lodge helps you savor the outdoors with cast iron cookware and grilling accessories that can handle the heat. Whether you're cooking under the stars or grilling for the neighborhood, Lodge brings you fan favorites like the portable Sportsman's Pro Grill. Up your game with smoker skillets and grilling baskets or get creative with classic Dutch ovens and skillets. Crafted in America with just iron and oil, Lodge Cast Iron helps you turn every outdoor meal into a masterpiece. Go to LodgeCastIron.com to shop the full collection and savor the outdoors. For their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance and this podcast, we thank Lodge. Camille Cogswell prepares herself an espresso in a small white cup, takes a couple of sips, and retrieves a square of dough from the freezer. So I was going to make a crostata, um, which is like kind of like a flat pie. Under her roller, the dough spreads into a delicate sheet, flecked heavily, beautifully, with butter so that it looks like a terrazzo tile. The plan is to top that with jam, some apples, and a pistachio crumble. Every fall, my mom and her sisters have a canning weekend. One of the things that we make is damson plum jam. Um, Because my mom grows damson plums. She spreads some of the jam on the dough. Sounds kind of squelchy. Then she cuts the apples into thin, even slices. Once those are done, she sprinkles them with sugar and cardamom and arranges them in a thin layer on the dough. She folds the dough at the edges into a pretty rim, sprinkles the pistachio crumble, and pops open her kitchen oven. Just gonna slide this crostata into the oven on top of this pizza stone. I'll set a 20 minute timer and see what it looks like. Camille and her partner, Drew Tomo bought the house we're standing in at the end of 2020. The place came with a second structure, which has been used as a bakery for more than two decades. They've been working on renovating that building and putting together their business plan for the cottage bakery they plan to open there. Like previous bakers who occupied the space, they'll make bread. But Camille is a trained pastry chef, so they'll do a lot of pastries too. Their bakery is called Walnut Family Bakery. Camille says much of what she and Drew want to do at the bakery will be new to them. 
There are two wood-fired ovens on site. Neither of them has used one to make bread or pastries in the past. There's all the business stuff. There's also the question of what kind of flour they'll use. Camille says her flour education has been kind of limited. At CIA, where I went to school, everything was white flour. CIA is the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. She graduated in 2013. And since then, the same has also been true of most of her work experiences. I have mainly, in my career, you know, most of the places that I worked as a, as a baker and as a cook um, were mainly using, you know, just standard white flour and, you know, quality standard white flour. But now she's testing other grains. For the crostata dough, she used a quarter whole wheat flour and a quarter cornmeal to give it some texture and flavor. Yeah, the, the flavor difference is incredible. I mean, it's, it's obvious. Um, it's surprisingly obvious. She's been ordering flour from local suppliers, Carolina Ground and Farm and Sparrow. We're so lucky to have two grain mills in, you know, within 30 miles of here. Both started on, on this property. And this is an interesting thing. People who previously lived and worked at this property had a tendency to become obsessed with flour, to the point that two of them actually transitioned away from baking to milling flour. They've driven a small but mighty revolution among bakers in the South and beyond to take flour seriously, creating new markets and new flavors. The founder of Carolina Ground, one of the mills Camille is trying out, is Jennifer Lapidus. She was the first baker on this property from 1997 to 2008. Jennifer was always very specific about the flour she used because she made a particular kind of bread. The bread was very simple. It was just flour, water, and salt. It was a European-style, naturally leavened bread. That meant she didn't add commercial yeast. Instead, she used a starter to make the bread rise. Her starter's leavening power came from microbes in the flour itself. The type of baking that I did, the Flemish naturally leavened bread, required freshly milled flour to make the culture. She had an 8-inch stone mill, and before each bake, she'd mill fresh whole flour. She'd mix that with her starter, a technique used for centuries in Europe. And she'd bake her bread in a wood-fired oven she built with her own hands. The result was a loaf that was ancient in origin, physically demanding, flavorful, and full of texture. A loaf that was truly artisanal. As a baker, I was seeking this sort of, you know, real product. It was also a loaf steeped in this place she'd chosen to live, in the mountains of North Carolina. Its rhythms, its ovens, its challenges. A very local loaf, one could say. There was just one problem. The grain she was using to make flour in her little mill came from more than 1,000 miles away, in Minnesota. A quick primer here. There are two basic kinds of wheat, hard wheat and soft wheat. Hard wheat has more protein, which gives the bread structure and allows it to rise and develop those pretty air pockets. The hearty loaves Jennifer was baking require hard wheat. And hard wheat did not grow in North Carolina. In fact, the whole South mostly grew soft wheats. They were just better adapted to the local climate and land. 
It's the difference between uh, biscuits and baguettes. This is David Marshall. He just retired, but he spent decades as a wheat breeder. He says the wheat that was available in the South shaped the bread culture here. It is definitely the reason why, you know, biscuits are, are more prevalent because it, the soft wheats have been adapted better. So if you love biscuits with fluffy, flaky layers, you can thank soft wheat flour and the southern farmers who grow it. And if you prefer a crusty loaf of sourdough, then hard wheat flour, probably from the Great Plains, is what you're after. David says that he and his family are in this second camp. Oh, we love the, uh, uh, the, the very hearty breads. In the early aughts, David was working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in a North Carolina wheat breeding program. And he wondered if it'd be possible to breed a local variety of hard wheat to make the kinds of bread he likes, yes, but also to create a local hard wheat option for Southern bakers. The biggest challenge was developing disease resistance. Hard wheat is used to the dryness of the plains. It doesn't have defenses against diseases caused by plentiful rain and humidity in the South. David needed to fix that while maintaining yield, protein levels, and taste. In modern wheat breeding, taste is often an afterthought. The priority is yield and hardiness. David says usually breeders release new varieties once they meet production criteria in the lab and the field. But he wanted his grains to also pass muster in the mill and the bakery. If the millers and the bakers aren't going to uh, embrace them, then what's the point? His first variety, called New East, was ready for testing in 2008. And he invited a bunch of bakers to come check out this new grain in a field in Waynesville, North Carolina. Jennifer Lapidus got an invitation. So I went to this field day and, you know, all of my friends were there, baker friends. Many of these bakers started testing the hard wheats for David in their bakeries, including Jennifer. At that point, she had stepped away from baking commercially, and she had grown interested in milling. That is, grinding grain into flour. That same year, global prices for wheat skyrocketed to record highs. The spike was caused, in part, by traders speculating on the commodity market. People who knew nothing about baking wheat into bread were making her job harder. And something clicked for her. She could cut out the faraway money people by working within a local grain economy especially since there was, finally, a wheat variety that could actually be grown in North Carolina. I wanted to keep this in the hands of the small to medium-sized bakers. I felt like if somebody didn't sort of step in, that we would never have access to this. Jennifer organized the bakers, basically the market, who'd be willing to pay more for local fresh flour. She also had to work with farmers willing to grow the new seed. I'm forever trying to kind of Establish deeper buy-in for my grower end. You can have a zillion bakers, but like, you gotta have committed long-term growers. The new bread wheat doesn't yield as much as soft wheat, and the seed is more expensive. Often, Jennifer provides the seed, but the crop still has to meet certain quality parameters. Sometimes it falls short. Even with the new varieties David Marshall bred, the hard wheat isn't perfect. Still, she's pretty good at cajoling. 
matters when you bring bread or to a grower. It matters a lot. So I try to kind of cultivate those relationships as much as I can, like getting a baker out into the field with the grower is always really fun. With the buyers and the growers in place, someone still had to do the milling. Little by little, Jennifer set up a milling operation. She didn't do it alone, but she's been a primary force in creating a new market around local hard wheats in the South. Today, Carolina Ground occupies a light-filled space in Hendersonville, North Carolina. In the storage room, there's nearly a year's worth of grain from farms across North Carolina and Virginia sitting in giant white bags. Um, well, these are all um, one-ton totes, so you can see New East, New East Birch, so that comes from Birch Farms in Faison, North Carolina, and the variety is New East. Um, there's Barnum soft wheat, so that comes from Lake Barnum in Wake Forest, North Carolina. So yeah, this is grain stored, and we'll take this out and mill it in there. In the milling room, a miller sews up filled bags of flour headed to a who's who of southern bakeries, while more flour piles up into bins. So we have two mills. These are stone mills. It's a different, older process than the one that produces commodity flour. In that process, a roller mill peels wheat berries into their components. The outer layer of the seed, called the bran, is separated from the meaty endosperm. That, in turn, is separated from the germ, which contains the seed's reproductive parts and nutrients that are good for people. White flowers are usually mostly endosperm. And then, um, if you want whole wheat, they can put them all back together. Often they will remove the germ, though, because that's the oily, um, you know, more prone to rancicity um, aspect. But that's also the germ. That's the vibrance and the nutrients and the flavor and the oils and um, and the wheat berry. It just it's such a perfect entity in itself. The stone mills, each about the size of a hot tub, use two large, flat, round stones to crush the whole wheat berries into flour. The germ stays. The flour is oilier in texture and has a creamy, off-white color. Its shelf life is no more than six months, unlike the commodity flowers, which last practically forever. But the fresh, stone-ground flowers have something else going for them. Taste. You never think of that, that flour would have a flavor or not. But commodity flour does not have a flavor. It doesn't taste like anything. It's more as like if you add a flavor-forward flour to stone milled, you're, it's like a completely whole new palette of flavor. It's like echoes and depth. It's like the difference in a, yeah, between a print and a painting. In the 1800s, there were more than 20,000 grain mills in the country. Every community had one. Growers would bring their grain, wheat or corn, for example, to the local mill. They'd catch up on gossip while they waited for the stone mills to turn grain to flour. In Appalachia, Jennifer has initiated a kind of resurgence of this type of small-scale mill. The new mill has a space for workshops and an oven for testing and demonstrations. Bakers drop in to pick up their flour. It's become a community asset. And other millers are paying attention, too. Jennifer Lapidus started milling flour because her bread demanded it. Next, we'll meet David Bauer, another baker turned miller. We'll also return to Camille Cogswell. She built a pastry career using white flour, 
but now she's thinking about introducing fresh whole wheat flours to her baking. But first, this quick break. Since 2015, nonfiction coffee has taken a thoughtful approach toward transparency and traceability in coffee sourcing. Through meaningful relationship, intentional giving, and exceptional roasting, nonfiction honors the stories behind each coffee and serves as a trustworthy ally of growers, farm workers, and importers fighting for a more just and equitable supply chain. Learn more about their business model and shop their coffees at nonfictioncoffee.org. Nonfiction coffee, coffee at its word. When Jennifer Lapidus left her home bakery in Marshall, North Carolina, and started to focus more on milling, she rented the space to a baker named David Bauer. The bakery he started there was called Farm and Sparrow. Like Jennifer, David had been interested in sourcing locally for his breads, but had never had a chance to work with any local hard wheats. And I met a farmer, an older farmer in the area, who grew out his family's old variety of corn that he had maintained seed for for generations. And he would mill grits on his farm in this old mill. And um, we became friends. So I had these grits, and I was just like, it was an epiphany, like tasting like freshly milled grits from like old corn. Just a total epiphany. But I was a bread baker, and those two things didn't exist together at that moment. David did two things after his epiphany. One, he started incorporating corn into his breads. And two, he asked the farmer, John McIntyre, to try growing hard wheat. And he was like, oh, sure. <laughs> sure, why not? In 2008, David gave John a turkey red wheat land race variety from the Black Sea region to plant. A land race isn't bred by plant scientists like David Marshall for specific traits. Instead, the semi-wild plants are left to evolve and adapt on their own to the environment where they grow. My feeling was like, okay, well, if we grow it here long enough, it'll adapt to this place, and it'll, it'll really kind of be its own thing, you know? It'll be a wheat, a wheat for here, for the mountains. John McIntyre, the farmer, grew this wheat for a few years, and then David started giving seed to other farmers, too. What was cool was as the grain came back from all these different farms, it didn't resemble the original wheat anymore. It was adapting and changing and adapting to the place that it was grown. So, I mean, that's terroir, really, an expression of the place. By 2013, all of the wheat he used in his bakery was coming from farms in the region. David milled it himself and baked it, too. In some ways, it was exactly what he'd wanted— a locally produced bread that expressed the terroir of the place it came from in every bite. But it gave him pause, too. I brought different types of wheat here to develop it for a type of bread that never really existed here in the first place. Is that a good thing? <laughs> Not sure. He wondered if what he was doing was contradictory to what he claimed he wanted. I felt like I was kind of trying to reinvent the wheel a little bit to come up with varieties, you know, of wheat that I was able to kind of like fit into a type of bread that I had decided I was going to be baking. And that didn't feel particularly, you know, terroir <laughs> um, oriented. David fed off that conflict. Growers he worked with still grew the hard wheat, but he also played around with incorporating local soft wheats in his bread and using corn. He started asking farmers to grow different corn varieties too. I don't 
think it's bad to like come from one place, move to another, and have your own thing that you bring with you. But it's incredibly rewarding when you can kind of work through those differences and come up with something that's kind of stands by itself. These days, Farm and Sparrow is exclusively a mill. David has continued to work with land-raised grains. They're more unpredictable than the newly bred varieties, but he says they're a truer expression of terroir. Both he and Jennifer say what they're doing is complementary. While he prioritizes the sense of place in his grains, Jennifer, using scientifically bred wheat, is producing a more consistent flour. There are other regional mills emerging too, all over the country. Many of them saw an explosion of business during the pandemic. People are searching for something. Maybe it's terroir, maybe it's taste, perhaps a connection to people, even if it's through something as ephemeral as fresh flour. David Bauer told me about one of the growers he worked with that made me believe flour could deliver more than just bread. His name was Phil Kingsley, and he taught David a lot about growing grains, to understand them as living entities with characteristics. If you tend to them and take care of them and give them the space that they need and give them cover crops and rotate the planting and do all the caretaking, it, it can be something really impressive. It might not be what you expect, but that's the exciting part. Phil was one of a few older, semi-retired farmers David worked with who relied on an almost mystical connection with the grains to grow them, rather than using fertilizers and some of the other tools of the modern farmer. But they have an intuitive relationship with, like, some of these older varieties and how they grow and what they want to be doing. For Phil, the grain was a part of him. Then he got sick. So Phil, Phil like, wrote me in January and was like, you know, David, here's the deal. I... I have ALS. It's progressing very quickly. I don't know if I'll live to harvest or not. Um, you know, which kind of blew me away and was really upsetting. Um, he said, but don't worry, we're going to get that wheat out of the ground. <laughs> I was like, don't worry about the wheat right now. But Phil did worry. The cover crops were getting really tall, and the wheat was kind of starting to lay over. It was right on the edge of becoming unharvestable. Some neighbors agreed to, like, drive his combine for him, and they got him, like, propped up on there. And he kind of barked out orders, and the neighbors all came together and harvested that last crop of wheat for us, which was a really, you know, humbling experience. Uh, so it was really important for him, too. It was, re- it, was a, it was a life's work, and he was, like, dead set on that last crop getting in. And um, it, it got in. Yeah, and then, you know, when he was in the hospital before he died, you know, his wife, um, Judith, asked if, I, if there's any way I could get a loaf of bread up there from that crop for him to eat. And one of the last meals he had in the hospital was uh, bread that we got. You know, we, like, rushed into baking some bread. <laughs> to, you know, and the crop wasn't even ready to bake with yet, but, like, we, we baked some bread and we shipped it up there really quickly and he got to eat it before he died. That devotion to the grain made an impression on David. You know, that was very imprinting for me, like as a young baker, both like the mentorship and to see grain growing and that whole process being part of someone's like life work was an incredibly moving thing. When we manage to eat the way we want, it seems often a reflection of living the way we want. Fresh bread means the time to bake it. Fresh flour means a closer connection to the grain, to the soil, to the farm, to someone else's hands. 
When the hands of neighbors contribute to every loaf, it's the very definition of community. Suddenly, a basic food like bread embodies a small world in every bite. You can look at it as a necessity, a luxury, or maybe even both. It's a level of care that feels like love. Camille Cogswell, who's opening a new bakery at the Marshall property where Jennifer Lapidus and David Bauer once baked, is at the beginning of her journey with local grains and fresh whole grain flours. She's had a lot of success with plain old white flour. And I ask her what motivates her to move away from that. It's a health thing. It's a nutrition thing. It's a, you know, going back to the source thing. Camille says the property itself has something to do with how she's thinking about grains, too. There's the history, of course, the local millers that got their start at her current address. But there's also the feel of the place itself. It's kind of rustic, tucked into a curve of a winding mountain road, away from the chaos a more accessible bakery might have. That's kind of a huge appeal of this whole thing out here is like the wood-fired baking, right? You're not using uh, a gas or electric oven. You are literally going back to the most primitive way of baking. And there's something really, you know, enticing about that in general um, and really kind of focusing all of your intention um, and all of your energy towards something that, even though it's much more laborious, it's so satisfying and you feel much more connected to the product. Grains are a part of that. With flour, she can foster connections to her new home, new foodways and purveyors, new people. Flour, then, becomes a tool for community building. Camille lets the crostata go a bit past the timer. Okay. That looks pretty good. I think we're I think we're ready. I'm gonna take it out. What are you looking for? Well, it's all golden brown and like a dark golden brown. The jam is bubbling all around the edges, and in some places it's even bubbling out, which is super sexy. And I see some apples poking out too, and they're starting to brown a little bit. Yeah, so I think we're ready. She carries the crostata to the sunny front porch and cuts it into slices. That's quite good. <laughs> I mean, put basically anything on top of pie dough. It's going to be great, right? Mm, that's so good. <laughs> the crust is astounding. And for a moment, I enter a state of reverie. It's a windy spring day, but I can taste summer in the damson plum jam and hear wheat whispering as I chew. By the time I finish my piece, I'm already sad I'll never taste it again for the first time. Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zhiroff, who has sampled bread on five continents. Wow. <laughs> Special thanks for mastering Ghost to Bethany Sands. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA publications is Sarah Kent Milam. Additional editing and fact-checking comes courtesy of Olivia Terenzio and Katie King. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to immerse yourself in our career server oral histories. There, you'll meet folks like Princeton Saunders, Nelson Gonzalez, and Bernita Joyner, and many, 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 many more. 
While you're there, we'd be much obliged if you'd consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hull. I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around. Really? Plenty? It's gravy. (laughs) There's a lot of it. (laughs) 